If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to John chapter 20. We have some Bibles in the top corners of the balcony and just outside the doors. Happy to uh, lend you one of those. Uh, We'll have it on the screen as well. The reason we love for you to have a Bible in your hand is because I'm not making stuff up here. I'm not just sharing some of my opinions with you. I want to show you that we're, we're looking at a text in Scripture that we believe is the Word of God, and if this is what He says, then it matters for us. And so that's why we, we like to point you to the Bible. As you turn to John chapter 20, it's most of the way in the Bible. There's four Gospels that start the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John will be in John chapter 20. As you turn there, I want to tell you a story. My family have a dog. We got a dog this summer. Her name's Bailey. And when I say our family got a dog this morning, what I mean is Emily came home with a dog, my wife, and so we had a dog. That's how that went. And, uh, and I have come to love her. She's a rescue. If you ask what kind of dog she is, I'll say she's a lot of things. She's a mutt, but she has captured the heart of our family, and I take her for walks regularly, as you do, and we have a grocery store in our neighborhood, so sometimes I would, I used to, walk her to this grocery store, and a lot of our neighbors would just tie up their dog outside the store when they would get some things, so I did that. I tied up my dog. I only had a couple things to get. I was in the store for like five minutes. I come back out, and she's gone. Like, she's gone. She's not there. And I hear some barking in the distance. So I go running, like, to a different parking lot where I hear barking, only to find just another random dog in the back of an SUV. So I'm running. I call Emily at this point saying, our dog's been taken. It's over. This is bad. Uh, I call the SPCA, and they tell me to call animal control. And animal control call me to call the non-emergency police line, and that's called everybody dishing it off to somebody else. And so I kept doing that. I went back to the grocery store, found the manager. They were really helpful. We started to look at security footage, and eventually we found this woman walking off with our dog. And so I tell Emily this. I'm in communication, right? This is key. She wants to know what's happening. And we're just looking at this footage. I call the police back, tell them to give the description of the woman we see on the footage. And then a few minutes later, I get a call from my wife, and she says, I've got her. I'm like, what? You have her? She's like, yeah. And so what happened was she was picking up the boys from school when this happened. They raced home, got in the car, started driving, taking a look. They're driving down Vetter Road, and towards them is this woman walking with our dog. So she does what any sensible woman would do. She lays on the horn, drives onto the sidewalk, cuts her off, runs out, and gets her dog back, Right? <laughs> And this woman starts really going at her, giving these stories. You should feed your dog. It's starving and all this kind of stuff. And my wife goes right up to her face and says, you're lucky my kids are in the car or I'd knock your teeth in. (laughs) Look, we all have things we regret in life, right? (laughs) Actually, I'm not even saying that's one of them for my wife. I don't know. I'm just generally at this point saying we all have things we regret, right? And later, the, uh, the police asked if we wanted to press charges. We said, no, and then we talked to our kids about grace, and that was the teachable, yeah, that was the moment. But it was amazing because, uh, like, the cred that Emily got with, with our boys who were observing mom, what they discovered is dad's the one who loses the dog, mom's the one who gets it back. Like, if there's a superhero in the family, we now know who it is, and so that happened. But it was amazing. When I walked out of the grocery store and my dog was not where I left her, my heart sank. Like I had a sick feeling and I started racing around the neighborhood. And l- l- let's put this in perspective. It, it's just, it's a dog, okay? 
So think with me for a moment about the heart-sinking loss for the disciples as the, the teacher that they had followed day in and day out for three years, all these expectations of what they thought Jesus would do and who he was just died on a cross. Think of that heart-wrenching loss. And then think with me about the hope and the excitement that slowly began to fill their hearts as they realized he rose. He's come back. So let's look at John 20, starting in verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Let's stop there. Question. What difference does it make that the tomb was empty and Jesus rose? Everything. Actually, the Apostle Paul, right, this great missionary of the early church who wrote some letters that are in the New Testament, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What difference does the empty tomb make, the resurrection make, if he didn't? If he didn't, then we're lost, people. We're still in our sin, and our faith itself is pointless. Therefore, the resurrection, it would appear, is the very center of the Christian faith. If he didn't rise, Christianity falls apart. But conversely, if he did rise, it changes everything. H.G. Wells, 20th century British writer, wrote, I am a historian. I am not a believer. He's not a Christian. I am a, he was not a Christian. I am a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of, not fantasy, history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Josephus, a Jewish historian in the first century. So I think he was born around the time Jesus died. So this is, this is very early. Not a Christian, a Jewish historian, wrote a number of volumes known as the Antiquities. And in 93 AD, this non-Christian Jewish historian wrote, about this time there lived Jesus a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. That means the anointed one. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, he's stating this as fact. 
When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared restored to life. He doesn't say the Christians said that he did. He's stating as a historian, he rose on the third day, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. There is so much evidence for the historicity of Jesus Christ that this Jesus of Nazareth actually lived, that he actually was put to death by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and that there is account after account after account of witnesses to his resurrection that, that the vast majority of historians say, well, we have to do something with that. So overwhelming is the evidence that uh, historians acknowledge that the resurrection either happened or a massive hoax about it happened. But we cannot flippantly say, oh, Jesus, oh, that's just fantasy. That's just, that's just fiction. It, it cannot be said. It's, it, it's not intellectually honest. So I'm going to list now the four dominant arguments in opposition to the resurrection claim. What I'm doing here is I'm, I'm looking at work, dissertation papers that have been done, arguments by historians, by scholarship that have been made saying, well, obviously Jesus lived, and obviously Christianity caught fire like nothing else in history. What, what, what happened there? They, they don't want to believe in Jesus, so these are the four dominant arguments in opposition to the resurrection because you can't just say Jesus didn't live, die, and have witness after witness say that he rose. So here's the first dominant argument to the resurrection claim. It's this, that the body was stolen. His, uh, this, this actually makes sense, right? Because Mary Magdalene, this, this close friend and follower of Jesus, arrives at the tomb, sees that it's empty, and what's her first thought? Who's taken the body? Where's the body? Where have they placed it? Who has taken it? That's what's going through her mind. So it's not far-fetched to think that that somebody stole the body. But in this argument that the body was stolen, his, the, the argument is this, the disciples of Jesus stole the body and made up the resurrection to further the ministry of Jesus. The idea is they were so invested, and if he died and if his body lay there, that's the end before it's even really begun of Christianity. So they put this elaborate hoax together. But let's, let's, let's interact with that a little bit. So if the resurrection didn't happen, here's, here's what I wouldn't do if I was a disciple of Jesus. I wouldn't write the four Gospels, these accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, I wouldn't write them in such a way, um, how do I put this, where I look like a total idiot. But that's exactly what the four, how the four Gospels read. I mean, over and over and over again, about the disciples, we're like, man... You guys don't get it. Like Jesus is like, the first will be last, the last will be first. I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. You need to take up your cross and follow me. His disciples are listening to this and literally right after are like, who's the greatest among us, Jesus? Like who gets to be at your right in prominence and who gets to be at your left? Like just like, the, like they're just not getting it. Like here, the ultimate is this. Peter, right, who never says the right thing, finally does. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter's like, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. And Jesus is like, yes. Blessed are you, Peter. You nailed it. Finally, Peter. Right? Awesome. He got it. Literally, the, the next story is Jesus saying, I must go and suffer many things in, in Jerusalem. And Peter's like, no, you won't. And Jesus turns to him and says, 
get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Peter's finally gotten it right. He's like, you're God in the flesh, the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And then the Messiah turns around, looks him in the eyes and says, you're the devil. So if I'm creating an elaborate hoax, I'm one of the creators of it, I'm not going to make myself look like an idiot over and over and over. It makes no sense. Also, if they stole the body and the resurrection is an elaborate hoax and, and, and they're, they're penning these gospels to say so, here's what else they wouldn't do. They wouldn't have women be the first to discover the empty tomb. Now, to us in the 21st century West, we're like, well, that's offensive. But we have to put ourselves in first century, right, Palestine, Israel. We have to put ourselves there and recognize that at that time in society, by and large, women's testimony was inadmissible in court. Meaning if they were an eyewitness, it wasn't considered valid testimony. That was the state of affairs at that time. So if they're constructing an elaborate hoax, here's what you don't do in first century Israel. You don't say in every single gospel, they point this out, women discovered the empty tomb. Well, who's giving testimony to it? Women are. You just don't manufacture a a hoax like that. You don't do it. Thirdly, they wouldn't all die horrific martyrs' deaths if it was all just an elaborate hoax. Save John, the gospel writer we're reading from, every one of the disciples died a martyr's death. We're talking upside-down crucifixion. We're talking beheadings. And the only thing they had to do was recant their faith and their lives would be spared. But to a man, they were killed because they said, Jesus died for my sin, he's the son of God, he rose again and there's life in his name. Eventually somebody's gonna say, okay, no, 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 we just made it up. But none of them did. In fact, John was the only one who was spared. They tried to kill him by boiling him. Somehow were unsuccessful. That freaked them out and so they banished him to the um, prison island of Patmos where he wrote Revelation. So things didn't go smoothly for him either. To a man, they never recanted that Jesus rose because they believed he rose. Second argument in opposition to the resurrection is they went to the wrong tomb. There's, there are books written about this. And right, I mean, I kind of get this. It's like the typical guy, the disciples are like, no, this, I know the way. I don't need to ask for directions. This is the tomb. And it's empty, and so what that means is, clearly he's risen. Turns out he was just a few over. (laughs) It makes no sense. Here's why. Because of the resurrection, Christianity began to just blow up as a thing. And people were getting saved. Jewish leaders put Jesus to death because they wanted it to stop. How do you make it stop? The Romans wanted peace. How do you make it stop? All you do... To stop Christianity is say, his body's right here, you guys, and you roll out the dead body. You find the body, you show the body, and Christianity is done. But it's never happened. Third, they hallucinated the resurrection. This is the theory. They were so traumatized and filled with grief and exhausted that they hallucinated his resurrection. 
But here's the thing. Jesus appeared not just to a few people, but hundreds of people. And there's not much evidence for mass group identical hallucinations that went on for 40 days. The hallucinations continued for hundreds of people where Jesus sat with them and ate with them, and then all of a sudden, for all of them, the hallucinations stopped when Christians claimed that he ascended to the Father in heaven. The mass hallucinations stopped. With the introduction of some pretty crazy drugs these days, there's still not evidence for mass hallucinations that are so alike. That's why Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, says our faith hinges on this. This is of first importance that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose, then he appeared to the apostles or the disciples, and then it goes on to say, and he appeared to over 500 men at one time, and most of them are still alive. I mean, why does he include information like that? The reason is because he's saying, go ask them about it. Like, I'm not, I'm not making up a fantasy. Most of the 500 people who saw him at once are still alive. Go ask. There's just no evidence for a hallucination claim. The fourth common theory is called the swoon theory, and this, is what, this isn't what Emily does over me, um, which is a figment of my imagination, a hallucination, I guess. The swoon theory is, and this has the most traction over the centuries, and it's the official position of Islam, and it's the position of, of most common among atheists. Right, intellectual atheists who say, yeah, I've got to do something with Jesus. This is where most of them land. It's the swoon theory. It's the claim that Jesus didn't really die but passed out and so therefore didn't resurrect so much as come to. Um, this position is held because the claims made by people who say they saw Jesus after the crucifixion are historically difficult to deny. So this position doesn't try to deny them. But most historians write off this theory, the swoon theory, because the Romans, you know what they knew how to do? You know what they knew how to do? They knew how to kill people. They had mastered crucifixion. It's not plausible that they not only accidentally didn't kill Jesus, but that mere hours later he would walk around and interact with people in such a way that it appeared that he was fine. You ever see that old Monty Python where the guy's walking down the road with a cart and he's like, bring out your dead. And then this guy brings a body over his shoulder and he's about to put it on the cart and the, the body over the shoulder is like, I'm not dead yet. It's like, ah, close enough. And they just want to throw him on the cart. Historically, right, this has happened where they thought someone was dead and then it turns out they were actually alive, right? They, it seems like they fell asleep on their bed and then, oh, actually they're still alive. But to be crucified, to earmuffs children, have your, the, 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 the flesh off your back ripped off. In fact, we read in, in John chapter 19 on, 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 in good, on Good Friday that they broke the legs of the, the criminals crucified on either side of Jesus to, to hurry their death so they couldn't catch a breath and they would die more quickly. They went to do that to Jesus, but they found he was already dead. But one soldier stuck a spear up under the rib cage, piercing the heart sack of Jesus, and blood and water gushed out. It's just not feasible that the swoon theory happened that mere hours later Jesus was able to come out from the tomb and convince people that he was the conqueror over death. 
that he had triumphed over death. He would have succumbed to his wounds. He would have been so nearly dead, if not dead. What didn't happen with Roman soldiers who crucified people was that they were crucified on a cross and then walked home after. Just didn't happen. Now listen, I'm not saying this to try and prove Christianity to you at all, at all, by any stretch. I'm just I'm, I'm saying it to show you that it, it doesn't just take faith to believe in the resurrection, it actually also requires faith not to. Remember, if Jesus rose, it changes everything. Let's pick it up again in verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, it's like the blinders were on, on her eyes. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Talked about some of the arguments against the resurrection of Jesus. Let's talk now about the implications of the resurrection. Because if Jesus rose, it changed everything, changes everything. How? Well, first, here, let's talk about believe it. Let's talk about believing it. We see here that the resurrection demands a response Firstly, for Mary, when she shows up, her first response is one of fear. Later, the disciple Thomas is going to hear that Jesus has risen, and he's going to doubt. That's his response. But here, John, as he enters the tomb, his response is belief. He has faith. The resurrection isn't a fairy tale, and it's not an analogy, right? Let's not... Do what the liberal church is doing these days, which is Jesus was put down, but he got up again, and so can we. That's what the gospel is these days in some places. No, it's not just some pithy, lame analogy. We believe that the resurrection really happened in history, and therefore it demands to be believed or denied. But what we can't do is be indifferent. A number of years ago, I was part of leadership of a young adults ministry at another church, and this young woman started coming. She had a brand new Bible that she had just bought from the Christian bookstore. She started coming to our young adults ministry, and as we got to know her, we realized that she had just given her life to Jesus. And asking her about it, she said, yeah, I went to see the passion of the Christ. And as I sat there watching the crucifixion of Jesus, I just had this overwhelming conviction in my heart that this is true. It demands a response. And she gave her life to Jesus in the movie theater that something Mel Gibson made. I mean, God works 
in incredible ways. Uh, and so astounding because she realized if this is true, this Jesus story, it demands a response. The resurrection not only demands a response, another implication is that the resurrection fulfills Scripture. We see this in verse 9 of our text, but we also see that John believed because he saw the empty tomb and burial cloths lying folded. Why were they folded? They were folded because they were done with. They weren't needed anymore. No stolen body. You don't stop and unwrap the expensive linens, leave them, then take the body. You take it all, and yet there they are, folded nicely. Why? Well, Jesus doesn't need these anymore. But before it all clicked, that that all of the Old Testament, all of the Scriptures had been fulfilled, that, that the foreshadowing in the Old Testament towards the New Testament to the ministry of Jesus, everything was foreshadowing, that the prophets who came prophesied about Jesus and he fulfilled it all. Before all of that clicked for John, as he stood in the empty tomb, he said, Jesus is risen, and he believed it. Look, some of us want every answer to every doubt we have about Christianity before we will believe. And I want to say I respect that a lot. I'm kind of wired that way. I want to chase down every, every doubt, every possibility, right? And, and here's what I would say as, this, as an aside. Do it. Chase those down. If, 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 if the gospel is true, if the Bible is true, then we don't need to be afraid of truth. It's God's truth. And so chase those down, explore those, study those. Yeah, great. But I also want to say to you, do not wait if your heart is yearning for this to be true, that Jesus died and Jesus rose for every little doubt to be answered before you will surrender to Christ. Stand there like John in the tomb and say, there's so much more to discover, and yet I'm standing here in awe that Jesus rose. I just invite you to believe it. Secondly, live it. Another implication, believe it, also live it. Live it in a few ways. Live in light of it. Let it affect your life. I want to read to you verse 17 again. Jesus said to Mary, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brother's and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Over and over and over again in John's gospel, Jesus says, my Father, as in his heavenly Father, my Father. Jesus also says, the Father, a number of times. But for the very first time, you know what he says here? Your Father. For the very first time, you know what he says? Go tell my brothers. And he's saying it to Mary, this woman he loves so dearly. Sister, go tell my brothers that I need to go to my Father and your Father. Why is Jesus using that kind of language now? He's using that language now because of all that he accomplished on the cross and through the empty tomb. Jesus, through that finished work, has now made a way for us sinners to God. Not just in some very strict, distant way, but as family. A couple years ago now, Eldon and I, Pastor Eldon and I went to um, a pastor's conference, like thousands of pastors in the South, in Louisville, Kentucky. We say Louisville when we found out that you say Louisville. 
And uh, so that, that was there. There was a bunch of pastors. A lot of them were from the south. And we kind of giggled with each other because over and over again, you know, these, these pastors would get up on the stage and they'd say, Brother Pastor, Brother Pastor, would you come bring the word this morning, Brother Pastor? And just, so anyways, for fun, in the office space here at the church, we often refer to each other as my Brother Pastor. Brother Pastor, would you get me some? You know, anyways, that kind of thing. We joke around. But it's true. Because we together are brothers and sisters in Christ, because of what he has accomplished, we're family now. We are brothers and we are sisters. I thought that story would do better, but it didn't. Okay. (laughs) I'm still going to do it in the second service. I'm sticking to my guns. (laughs) Here's another implication. Death is defeated, period. Death is defeated. Because Jesus rose, we have hope. Death has been defeated in Jesus. The resurrection proves it. Death has been defeated. Death no longer reigns because Jesus rose. We will rise with him. That's the proof. That's the evidence. That's the future hope that we can trust here and now. Because death has been defeated, we can have hope for the future that impacts today. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I want you to hear that. There is a hope that you can have in Christ that is for the future, yes, but affects your world today. Believe in him. But to my Christian brothers and sisters, my brothers, my sisters, it doesn't always feel that way, does it? I have hope today. I can live in light of it right now. The resurrection life doesn't always feel that way, does it? On my old iPod I used to have, I had two sermons by a preacher named S.M. Lockridge. One of them was this sermon where he was an African-American gospel preacher from San Diego, a few decades there. One of them was this sermon where he says, that's my king. He's the king of the ages. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. The other one is, Sunday's coming. Let me try this on. I'm going to try my best. It's Friday. <laughs> Jesus is praying. Peter's sleeping. Judas is betraying. The Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter's denying. But they don't know. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns, but they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walk into Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit's burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning and evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross, and they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday, but let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king, and the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved, but they don't know it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday, he's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday. But Sundays are coming. It says, oh, in my notes. (laughs) It's what he did. I remember listening to this. It's Friday. 
The earth trembles, the sky grows dark, my king yields his spirit. It's Friday, hope is lost, death has won, sin has conquered, and Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday, Jesus is buried, a soldier stands guard, and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It's only Friday. Sundays are coming. And you listen to the testimony of a girl who says, if my dad dies of cancer, he goes to heaven, he's happy with Jesus, and he gets healed there. A man can say, just before my wife passed, she said, don't be angry with God. How can you not be? Resurrection. Sunday is coming. In the throes of addiction. I mean, do things ever feel more hopeless than that? What hope is there? Resurrection. Sundays are coming. What's hard in your life right now? What isn't neat? What isn't clean? What's difficult? What seems impossible? What's causing grief? What's causing pain? The resurrection says this is not all there is, what you see here. This is not how things will always be as they are right now. In fact, Jesus died and rose again so every wrong could be made right. Every sorrow turned to joy. That you can have hope in the midst of anything that if Jesus rose, it changes everything. Resurrection. It's Friday. Sunday's coming. Lastly, finally, implications, believe it, live it. Lastly, share it. Again, verse 17, Jesus said to Mary, do not cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. When Jesus said, don't cling to me, he wasn't like, don't be clingy, Mary. He's saying, stop clinging to me, but rather run off and be the first one to declare that you have seen the risen Lord. And she went and did just that. The resurrection is news that happened in history to share. Mary announced this news to the disciples. John, the gospel writer, wrote in his gospel, it says in the same chapter, in verse 31, he wrote his gospel, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Because of the resurrection, I am declaring it to you. And because of the resurrection, we all have the awesome privilege of telling others this incredible news. Jesus rose, and because he rose, it changes everything. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe it. 